0: This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu
1: backslash podcast.
0: Wow, it's a blessing. It is indeed a blessing to welcome you into this space. Um, we've had an incredible day with our guest lecturer who I'm about to introduce um, as we really lean into. Um, you know, at Whitworth, we've um, We've promised our students to deliver them an education of the mind and heart and equip them to honor God, follow Christ, and serve humanity. Um, Embedded in the heart of that mission uh, is a commitment to celebrate diversity, to do all we can to help our students to achieve equitable outcomes and to model inclusion. And as you know, That's not all easy, those are not easy achievements to make. Um, But we're committed to that because we are convinced that um, our students are better. We are better as faculty and staff when we um, make a a very um, serious and strong commitment to those core values. So thank you for being with us this evening. Uh, We have guests from Spokane um, Public Schools, um, Superintendent Dr. Redinger, Shelley Redinger, and her, uh, many of her staff, we want to welcome you to Whitworth, other guests from the community. Our president, Beck Taylor, just uh, hopped off of a plane and uh, arrived here. Uh, we so grateful for your, your presence and our provost, Carol Simon, and all of you. Um, we all matter, do we not? Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, um, we're going to be um, challenged, uh, in a time of engagement to think critically and reflectively around issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, namely um, uncovering issues related to unconscious bias. And to do that, we will be led by Dr. Dina Samuels. Let me just say, um, after about an hour or so of a presentation, we'll have some Q&A. And then uh, we have uh, books in uh, Dr. Samuel's books in the in the in the uh, vestibule here, where she, she will sign, uh, stick stick around to sign them and, and engage you afterwards. So let me introduce her, and we'll um, I will get out the way for us to hear from the person we come to to hear from. Dr. Dina Samuel's is a sociologist specializing in race, gender sexuality, and social justice curriculum, development, and training. She teaches in women's and ethnic studies at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and received the university's Outstanding Instructor Award. She is also the recipient of the Student Multicultural Affairs Honorary Award for Outstanding Achievement in Diversity. Among her many publications in the Pedagogy of Social Justice, Dr. Samuels is author of The Culturally, Culturally Inclusive Educator, Preparing for a Multicultural World, which is the book we have available to you uh, this evening, published in uh, 2014 by teachers, the Teachers College Press. She is also co-editor of the anthology The Matrix Reader, Examining the Dynamics of Oppression and Privilege, 2009 and author of Teaching Race, Gender, Class, and Sexuality, also published in 2009. This is a teaching guide to the previous uh, volume. At the University of Chicago, I'm sorry, at the University of Colorado, hope that's not prophetic or anything, yeah. um, Dr. Samuels serves as the director of the Matrix Center for the Advancement of Social Equity and Inclusion and co-directs the annual National Knapsack Institute, Transforming Teaching and Learning, which provides training to educators from around the country on teaching issues of inclusiveness. In addition, she has created curriculum for, and directed, and continues to co-facilitate the Building Inclusiveness Program, which provides diversity workshops for administration, faculty, staff, and students. Dr. Samuels is vice chair and founding member of the Privilege Institute in Denver, which houses the annual national award-winning White Privilege Conference, a social justice conference that focuses on challenging social inequalities. Dr. Samuels brings her passion for teaching inclusiveness strategies to universities, nonprofits, and corporations and also works extensively with K through 12 systems aqu- around the country. Please join me in uh, giving um, Dr. Samuels a very passionate Inland Northwest and in Spokane and Whitworth welcome, Dr. Samuels.
2: Thank you, thank you very much. Um, what an honor, really, to be here tonight um, with all of you, uh, and really to have spent the day interacting with some of some folks on campus, um, getting to know. I feel like I have new friends. I got a new home here at Whitworth. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Um, what I want to do, if you would just just bear with me for a moment, is it's late on Monday. It's still Monday, yeah? <laughs> okay. So it's late on Monday and what I'd like you to do is just take a moment to kind of let go of whatever you are doing today. So if that means for you to take a deep inhale and exhale and just let it go, kind of come back, come into the room because I need your whole body, mind, spirit, emotions, everything here with us, right? I want you to be all included as you come into this space. So if you would, let's take a big deep inhale. And then let it go. Welcome, 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 welcome. As we go through this idea, this, this, this notion of minimizing implicit bias, we're going to talk about what that means. But it's really, it, it's, it, it is hard work. And it's also emotional work. So it absolutely takes all of us to think about it, like your whole being, your whole body. And so, with that, I'm going to show you some images to start off. And I want you to notice, if you would, what's going on in your body as you see these images on screen. Okay? You ready? I'm just going to show you a few. And just notice what comes up for you. These are a bunch of bumper stickers I'm showing you. What does this mean? What is it, what is it saying to you? What is it saying about the person in the car? What, what are your feelings about the person who might be driving this car? from you? What did that call up for you? Depending on what it was, what, what came up for you? This isn't rhetorical, I'm actually asking. <laughs> Anybody want to share? Yes. Yeah. yeah, sort of what, what you know, maybe there was something specific in there that made you either react. right the type of person right yeah yeah very good and and i mean that's such a key point right that we think in two words typically there are two words roughly that we're actually stereotyping somebody based on those two words now that's not to say that the person has put this bumper sticker on their car because it says something they ap- presumably resonate with whatever the message is right so you know a little something about the person but that's about all we know is a little something. So what I'm asking you to consider is that when you see those two words, what it, what happens to you in terms of your the likelihood that you're going to interact with that person who's driving the car, right? That's implicit bias, right? It's it's explicit in the fact that you know a little bit of information because usually when we're when implicit bias, this unconscious bias that we have, and we'll. I'll go a little bit more deeper into what that is and how that operates. But what it is 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 that the result of it is it stops us from interacting with people based on very little information. So that that's kind of the point of this. So moving forward, or trying to move forward. <laughs> Hello. There we go. Moving forward, so this is we're going to talk a little bit about the, the my, this is, so this is my book. Um, what I want to talk about today, there's so in chapter five, I have eight steps of, you know, how to think about what we need to do in terms of um, becoming more culturally inclusive human beings, and not to mention educators. And this, what I'm talking about tonight, is literally only step one. <laughs> um, so anyway, you, there's... You, there's more, much more to it, but it is step one, which is the very first step. Until we understand implicit bias, we're not gonna be very successful with the other steps in terms of becoming culturally inclusive because we don't know what's stopping us from becoming culturally inclusive. So this is implicit bias is one of many challenges we have to the notion of cultural inclusiveness, becoming more culturally inclusive. So, here's some ideas, some ways of thinking about implicit bias. So, the idea that it's beyond asking people what they think. We need to understand the processes behind how they think, or how we think, okay? Uh, It's unconscious. Uh, It's usually against a particular social group. Social group identity, um, whether we're talking about race, or gender, or sexuality, or social class, or age, or uh, disability, or... Uh, religion, spirituality, all of those pieces. And even if we're not discussing them, even if we're not verbalizing people's social identities, we don't have these conversations because they're actually, in certain situations, they're taboo. Like we're taught not to talk about race, for example. We're still thinking about them. And so a lot of people think, well, if I don't mention it, it doesn't really matter. That's really not true. That's really not the case. The case is that it does matter, it does matter. And it, it actually affects how we interact with others. Whether it's race or gender or sexuality or any of those pieces, it, does, it really does matter. Some more ideas here. There is now conclusive evidence that bias is activated automatically. And the idea here is with, it's without intent. So it's not like we're saying, I'm going to be biased against this person. That, that would be covert. Oh, sorry. That would be overt. That would be uh, conscious prejudice, as opposed to this, which is unconscious. Is that you with me now? Okay. The uh, it happens very quickly. uh, Before we can stop it, basically. I mean, that's that's important to know. But unfortunately, we're not aware of it when it comes up. When we are, when we when. Uh, implicit bias is activated, we don't necessarily know it's happening and that's a problem because when you don't know it's happening, you can't stop it, as I said before. So thinking about implicit bias in general, unconscious ideas we have about others, based in stereotypes typically, right, that we've been taught and here's a, a really important piece in terms of what we're talking about tonight, is that it can cause exclusion. It can cause that bias to to be demonstrated. Um, It can stop us from interacting with people who may have different, who have social identities that are different than than ours. And the good news is is that they can be changed. But we need to be aware of them. So how do we become aware of them? Um, This notion of taking the implicit association test. So just a show of hands, how many of you have heard of the implicit association test before? That's good, that's good, it's not completely unknown. I'll tell you a little bit about it just so that you're clear. Um, Implicit Association Test was uh, created by uh, Greenwald and Banaji at Harvard University and it's called, uh, the project, it's called Project Implicit. And this test is phenomenal. Basically what you do is you go to their website and they have a whole slew of tests you can take based on various social group identities. So you can take a test on race, you can take a test on gender, sexuality, class, you know, poverty issues, um, uh, age, and basically you, it has to be done on a keyboard. You're pressing buttons, one, you know, uh, you're just following the directions on the screen, and the test takes a total of about five to seven minutes. At the end of that time, your results are compared with four and a half to five million people four and a half to five million people's results. Like I always say, like, we don't have that, that kind of sample size for any study we do. So you're now compared, it's, it's, it's a very robust sample size, it means that, um, and the test has been validated and triangulated and all of these things. We, there's roughly somewhere between three and 400 uh, research projects that have been based on this test. So it's very, I mean, in the field of social science it is out there. In fact, even in hard science it talks about what happens to your brain, you know, the the neural pathways and all of that. So this is, I mean, this is pretty good. This is the best we have right now in terms, and it's also the most efficient in, in, in the fact that it takes five minutes and all of a sudden you now know you're given results at the end of that five minutes, like I said, compared with all these other people who have taken these tests and your results come out saying that you have a strong preference for, if we talk about the race test is black and white, and so it will say you have a strong preference for white people over black people. You have a moderate preference. You have a slight preference. You have no preference. And then it flips. So that's you get the seven-point scale, and you know immediately, oh, I didn't know I had a bias towards these people. By the way, I don't consider myself racist. Like, who really considers themselves racist unless you're part of the, you know, the if you're a skinhead or something like that? But, like, really? But this is, this is implicit bias. And so um, I, I was saying earlier today that if I, when I give this assignment out to my students, I don't look at their results. I don't care about their results. What I care about is what it means to them and what they're going to do with the results. So that... In fact, if you have a strong preference for one group over another, it comes out as strong. Really, all it means is that you've done a really good job of learning the stereotypes and biases we've been, all been taught. That you've learned it really, really well. <laughs> and it's stuck in your brain. Like it or not, it's stuck in there. The good news is, as I said earlier, once you know it's there, we can, we can, we can challenge that. We can minimize it, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. So if you haven't taken it, please go online. Literally you can Google implicit association test or Google um, Harvard's project implicit. Just make sure that whatever you, you know, when you do that, that it has Harvard in there because there's some other tests that are similar. Um, Yeah, you want that one, you want that one. Uh, If your, your, your results come out that you have no bias, like let's say you take one on race and it says you have no bias, we'll preference one group over another. Take another test on a different category. Take a test on, on gender or take another test on, there's, there's one on um, weapons and race. There's one on, I mean, there's just so many. And just keep taking them until you learn what your biases are because there's nobody who's not going to have bias in anything. And so knowing where those are, where, where those lines are, is really, really useful in terms of building inclusiveness. And then consider your results. So this is, this is typically what I ask people to focus on in terms of uh, once they get their results. Don't, don't pay so much attention. It doesn't mean the end of the world if you've got a strong preference for one group over another. Like I said, it just means that you've learned really well. <laughs> um, and so, but these are the questions that I typically ask. What did you expect it to be versus what it was? And what does that mean to you personally? And like I said, then, then what are we going to do about it? And then taking that, those results, those ideas, moving forward, this is where we're going. How do our implicit biases manifest in our interactions with others? In other words, once we have implicit biases, how does that operate in our society? And what are the consequences of those interactions? If you have an implicit bias against someone, and you are against a group, and this person is from that group, What does that mean your interactions are going to be like? It's sort of like the bumper stickers. Like, really, what what does that mean? How likely are you to engage with somebody who you have an implicit, it's not intentional. It's unintentional. What what, what does that mean for you? So here are some of the consequences of implicit biases. This is a study that talks about students of color, students receiving out-of-school suspensions by race and ethnicity and gender. So, I mean, they've stereotyped a little bit where the red is females and the blue is males. Not so happy about that because, you know, it's still more stereotyping, but it is what it is. But look at what we've got here. This is for the same behavior. Who got out-of-school suspensions more often, like, really compared here? It's a huge difference for the same offense. Across the board. This is how implicit bias plays out. And we're talking about preschool children. When we're talking about out of school suspensions, we're talking about starting at three and four for the same offense. This can't have anything to do with these three and four year olds. You get that? If they're creating the same, you know, disturbance in class, and the students of color who are three and four years old are disproportionately being forced to, you know, to have an out-of-school suspension. That's got nothing to do with the kid. <laughs> do you get that? It's this implicit bias that teachers are putting on them or that the, the system, the, the um, discipline, this disciplinary system is putting on them. You with me? Three and four-year-olds, this is how early it starts. So, uh, yeah, so you see here, 48% more uh, have more than one out-of-school out of suspension. And so you can see by, based on race here. Um, and this leads to the school-to-prison pipeline. Look at these statistics here. Way over-representation of students of color who are then put into the prison system after having been suspended. Same quote-unquote crime, same problem behavior. And this is what we get. Unfortunately, this also means that there's some internalization going on of implicit bias. So think about what this means for the, when we look at the aggregate results of the implicit association test we find that 88% of white people show bias in favor of whites this is how we internalize that notion that white is right white is better white is you know is is what we is is what we're supposed to be that's supposed to be the norm that's supposed to be then, and then here's another one. 83% of heterosexuals show bias in favor of heterosexuals. So you're talking about there's bias here that is learned, and it's perpetuated again and again and again. For, for um, LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer questioning folks, this is life or death, right? If they're, it, that, that they're four times as likely to attempt suicide as somebody who is heterosexual. so This is life or death. This isn't just, you know, oh, well, it's nice to not be biased against somebody. This is life or death. And then the other, the flip side of that is here. People from traditionally marginalized groups often hold implicit biases even about themselves. So this is also problematic. 48% of blacks show bias in favor of whites. Why do you think that is? Exactly. So people of color are getting the same messages as white folks. Right? They're getting the same messages. Yes. Thank you. Third I mean that's a really excellent point too because that's, it's sort of like a second class citizen or a second class human being even. you know. Um, and I don't think we're, we're, we're not where we need to be on that, that topic. We're st- we still have that legacy that's followed us. Um, Here's where we're at, and I'm showing you some stuff that I think is really hard to, it's hard to watch, but I also want you to know that we'll get to the point of how we fix it. <laughs> so just, just to keep that in mind.
1: Recording was stopped at this point while a multimedia presentation was delivered. We will now rejoin the event in progress.
2: Okay, so. I, mean, I think there's a lot of emotion there, but I think unpacking it is really useful. Just really figure out what, what's going on here and what's, what is so terrifying. You know, what, what's the aspect of it? Because once we can unpack it, we can also see what's going on here and what can we do about it. There was another hand. Yes, thank you. Yes, they did. So it depends on which study you're talking about. Kiri Davis is African American, and she did the doll test. Um, I um, in the the studies that uh, were done by um, Harris, what's this person? Anderson Cooper. Um, they they controlled, but you didn't see the whole study, but they controlled everything, um, and they got the same results. So, yeah, there was a hand here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's worth more? What's the value? Absolutely, and that is true across the board. If you look at dolls, I have my students actually do this. Um, I teach a course where they actually have to go out and look at these kinds of things. They have to look at, um, you know, gender in that way. Going down the aisles and seeing all the pink, and you know, we know where we're at, where, where we know we've gotten to the girls' aisle because it's pink. you know stuff like that. They have to look at, and this is one of the things that they constantly bring back. Is why is it? that the white doll is literally valued higher than a a doll of color. It's it's terrifying, as you said. Yes. Mm -hmm. All I can say is bless you for asking that question. Really. That's the question I feel like we all need to be asking every day. What can I do differently today to challenge that? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll give you a few answers, but really it's a lifelong journey of learning. Um, But I I have a couple of ideas (laughs) to start you off. Um, There was another hand back there, yes. Yes, thank you so much for pointing that out because I think that um, oftentimes the the excuses are letting ourselves off the hook by saying that was back then. And things are so different now. We're post-racial now. Look, we have a black president who, by the way, is as white as he is black, just by as an aside, you know? Um, and yet, you know, this is, this is where we're at. We just, we haven't gotten as far as we, I think some of us think we have. There was another hand, yes. You do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that into the room because that's a hard thing to acknowledge um, for anyone who does feel guilty. I, you know, guilt is an interesting thing. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting emotion. Um, I think there's actually a place for it in this work, but not a huge place. I think it's a stopping point. And I would, I would say that anyone who looks at that and doesn't, and doesn't connect with it in any way, that, that's a problem. So if connecting to it means that guilt comes up or some other emotion that's really challenging or you, know, you feel shame or whatever it is, just please acknowledge those feelings. Like don't let them, don't brush them away. Acknowledge that they're there and then from that point, you can say, okay, what do I need to do? Because that guilt or any of those yucky emotions is, are, can be very motivating. Um, and so I don't want you to get stuck in any of those yucky emotions because if you get stuck in them, then it's hard to be effective in your work in this area. But acknowledging them as a stepping stone to action, great. So thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I do think that that's critically important in the, in again in the work that we're doing to try to build inclusiveness, thinking about what what does that mean, you know? How do we learn what we learned? How do we know what we know? Um, yeah. Was there another hand or? Okay. Thank you for your input. That's been that's fantastic. Uh, I want to quickly just talk about this notion of confirmation bias because I think when we think about implicit bias. We also need to add in this idea of confirmation bias. So this is when a person holds a negative stereotype about a group and meets someone who is perceived to uphold the stereotype, they will discriminate against that individual. Does that make sense to you? So it's confirming what you believe to be true. So you're really not interacting with the person in front of you. You're really... Interacting them through a lens of, well, I already know this about you, and so that's how I'm gonna treat you because that's what I knew already. It has nothing to do with this human being. That's how this is a part of how implicit bias comes out. And when we think about these, you know, the, the, the young kids in this doll test, you think about if that's how people there's a stereotype already they're going to then internalize that stereotype and learn it and believe it and think that this is the way it is, that what it means to be black means to be bad. And so confirmation bias, even for the little kids, is like this is what they're learning over and over again because this is how they're being treated. So it does come back to what Dr. Burnley is talking about too. And, and just this notion that we we do process information in ways that support our beliefs, and our beliefs are based in those stereotypes often, right? Uh, it's an automatic process, confirmation bias. It's unconscious, um, and the studies show like we have tests that can show in in social science research, we can say how prejudiced we think you are based on if you, how you answer this survey or the, these questions or whatever, and confirmation bias even occurs in, in that too. So knowing about confirmation bias, knowing that when, basically what it's saying is that you believe in a stereotype, you treat people accordingly, and when somebody challenges, somebody comes along who challenges the stereotype, so they're really, you know, the anomaly, they're, they're the outlier, they're the person who is challenging that stereotype, that's not what happens in our brains. We can't say, oh, this, this information is different from what I know. What typically happens with confirmation bias is it goes in one ear and out the other. We don't even hold on to it because it's so different from what the stereotype is that we know, we know is true. Right? So it go, it, we, we, don't, we don't pay attention to it. Once we know about confirmation bias, though, that's a good thing because then we know when mis- you know, information that's different comes along. That perha- perhaps black means good, you know? Like, wouldn't that be cool, you know, to, to think about it that way? That once we hear that or we see that, that we can say, when we start to reject it, we can actually challenge ourselves in that moment and say, oh, this is confirmation bias. I know what's going on. I need to listen to this information, this new information. It's challenging a stereotype, and I need to listen to it. Does that make sense? Yeah? So the way Alan Johnson puts it is he talks about the trouble we're in. He he wrote this book called Privilege, Power, and Difference, which I highly recommend as sort of a resource, a a way of thinking about um, not just implicit bias, but just thinking about the social inequalities that exist. And these are some of the things he says. He says, the trouble is rooted in a legacy we all inherited, and while we're here, it belongs to us. And so this idea of guilt, this is what he's talking about here we need to remember it isn't our fault. We did not create this. We didn't, as, as uh, was it Bruce Springsteen said, we didn't start the fire. <laughs> you know, We didn't. It wasn't caused by something we did or didn't do, but now that it's ours, now that we live in it, he says it's up to us to decide how we're going to deal with it before we collectively pass it along to the generations that will follow ours. So with that, keep in mind that we can overcome implicit bias. It is changeable. Knowing about it is the first step to overcoming it, and we have to start by knowing what our individual biases are. And based on our experiences, our own social identities and the experiences that we've had, you know, your, your set of biases or strong biases versus you know, moderate biases, whatever, might be different than the person sitting next to you. But you all have bias, we all do, we all have biases. So I always say start by you know, taking the IIT, take as many as you can, as many as you have time for. People these days on Facebook and you know, Twitter and stuff like that are really into taking these tests and so I'm like take this one. <laughs> this, this one's actually useful instead of figuring out which kind of gladiator you are or whatever. You know? <laughs> um, so awareness is not enough. So this is what the studies show. We need to find out what those biases are, and then you can't just stop there. Like, oh, now I know and I'm good. No, 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 no. We, we need some action. It's not enough. So we need specific strategies, not general. And this is what studies show too, that the more specific the strategy is, before we are meeting with somebody who we know we have a bias, whose group we know we have a bias against, we need to be really specific about what our strategy is going to be. And we need to think about this in advance of meeting with the person. Um, and what it, um, this is out of the Neuroleadership Institute. They talk about implicit bias and they look at it from a neural, you know, neural pathways perspective. And one of their findings is that you want to create an if-then plan. And I don't really like the word if-then because it says that there's a possibility that there's an if, that, that maybe it's not going to happen. So I've changed it to when-then. <laughs> because it rhymes, too, and you know, that's always fun. But the when-then plan, is much more effective than intending to act. So we can have an intention to say, "Oh yeah, I'll do that tomorrow." Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. Right? We want to have when this happens. So I give this example: when I watch TV or a movie, then I will think critically and start a conversation with the person I'm watching with. Did you see what just happened? Did you see that stereotype? That this critical thinking, critically engaging with our media, perhaps critically engaging with people around us, whether it's with from media, or you know, based on uh, uh, what's, what we're watching, or maybe it's a conversation we're having, or something someone says, and gently challenging them on that. These are all ways of thinking ahead, saying when that happens, this is what I'm going to do. That's the when then piece. Being really specific about how are you going to engage. Another way to challenge implicit bias is this notion of priming, and John Powell talks about this. So, priming is this idea that we have, we we have these connections, these associations um, that are based in stereotypes. But our framing of this, the, the stereotypes, the our framing of these biases is really what they are, we, we can change, we can alter those. So the way he puts it is when we observe positive images of people from stereotyped groups, we can begin to conquer our biases, simply call to mind a counter-stereotypic example. So let's say I've taken the IAT, the implicit association test, and I know I have a strong bias against, um, okay, gay people. Or or let's say lesbians, I'll be more specific here. Um, And so it comes up and it says, yes, you have a strong bias in in this way. Um, And then I know that the person I'm about to meet, it's not that I perceive this person as gay, but that I I happen to know this person's out. And I know I have a strong bias. What can I do? Ellen DeGeneres, perhaps, comes to mind. You know, like, who is somebody who maybe challenges some of the ideas that we have, the stereotypes that we have around what it means to be a lesbian in our society? You, all it takes is a moment. And maybe Ellen DeGeneres doesn't work for you. Maybe you, you have something, some other biases against her for whatever reason. But finding those counter stereotypic examples is really useful because once, once you've got those, you conjure them up, it takes a fraction of a second. And studies have shown that your interaction with the person after you've done that, after you've done this priming thing, that your, your interaction changes for the better. So it takes a second, once you know what your biases are. Yeah. So this is what I'm asking you to consider. Based on your own results, when you've taken, for those of you who've taken them, the IAT and, and found that you're bi- you know, find out, find, found some of your biases, who might you choose? And so be thinking about what, what that example is that you could conjure in your in your brain next time you need to. Um, some other quick suggestions: increasing our exposure and interaction with people who are different from us, building relationships across difference, asking questions, avoid making assumptions. This is also John Powell. Who talks about this as well? Um, This is some other interesting research which shows that when people of color are in leadership positions, implicit bias can be reduced among everyone in the group. So, uh, thinking about not only within the group that there are people, you know, people of color, for example, in leadership positions, but also what you're modeling now, what you're modeling for other folks. What does it mean for everyone in the group, for for folks in leadership positions to be of color, or maybe another traditionally marginalized uh, group? So the example I'm using here is, what does it mean if you have uh, a female ESPN anchor? Not only to the people within ESPN and the sports community, but even beyond that, and what's the outreach to that, and what does that mean for young girls who are interested in sports and think, oh well i could never be a, you know an anchor that would be so cool but i can't do that because i don't see any role models in that position so you're thinking about what kind of outreach we're talking about and what we're what what kind of modeling we're doing for the next generation oh, important seeking out new experiences learning a language reading you know reading we have radio stations you can listen to learning about other cultures across differences great we don't want to leave it people who are traditionally marginalized to teach us everything they want to ever know about their particular social group membership. It's just not fair. They do not have to be educators every, for every single person they meet all the time. Right? We need to do our own work. And the good news is, is we've got Google. right? We've got so many resources at our, our, at our disposal to find out information that we want to know. So we suggest that people think about the social group memberships they know the least about And go figure it out. Like go do some research. And then, once you've done some research, then I think it's perfectly fair. If there's a question, burning question that you have, or you want to know if it's okay to say it this way or whatever it is, then to go and 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 build relationships across difference. And once you have those relationships, then I think it's okay to ask questions. As long as it's not the first question you ask. You know? Those because those questions are typically whatever question you might have. The person who you're talking to may have heard that question 10 times already today. Really, do you want to be the 11th? <laughs> you know, it's not so fair. Um, so going to you know, independent films, I'm talking about here, um, challenging language, challenging behavior of friends, but doing it gently, that will be the most effective. You don't want to react to people when they are showing their implicit bias, because once you start thinking about this stuff, you'll see other people doing it all the time. And so you got to be careful about being the implicit bias police too, or the you know you see it you're going to see it everywhere. I mean, if you don't already, you will start to. Um, the more you're engaged with this this topic, and so I just recommend that you tread gently, and 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 be kind, <laughs> because other people may not have taken the IAT and they may not realize the biases that they have that are showing, it, either through their behavior or their their comments. So I, I just say tread lightly here. Uh, a couple more. Acknowledge that differences exist. Um, we didn't talk too much about colorblindness here today, you know, here this evening, but just the idea that we are not colorblind. The goal is not that we're all the same and, what well, you know, I don't see color. Like, so I asked the question, out of whose mouths do we usually hear I don't see color? White people. Yeah. Yeah, and I say, because people of color typically know that their color is seen, right? They may be treated differently than, than a white person, right? So it's usually out of white people's mouths, and they mean the, really well. They, it's the best intention saying, I don't see your color because I just love who, you for you. And really, what you're saying is, I don't see you. Your skin color doesn't matter to me. Your past experiences don't matter to me. You you know and by the way if I'm white my whiteness doesn't matter to me either that it had no bearing on who I am or any anything I've done in my life and it, I'm just avoiding the whole topic <laughs> that's not going to solve racism it's just not going to solve it we need to be having these conversations and color blindness is not the way so thinking about that as well um, and I use the word here identity blindness because it's not just about skin color it's also about we can look at this in terms of gender and sexuality and these conversations that we need to be having that we're just not. Um, and, and these are some of my favorite questions here. Who's in the room? Everywhere you go, everywhere you go ask that question. Who is in this room? Whose voice is being heard? Whose voice is missing? Why? What do I need to do differently to make this, this room, this space more, more inclusive? Whether it's student club groups, whether, whether it's a meeting down your hall, whether it, whatever it is, thinking about who's not here. What, what do I need to do about that? And then building relationships across difference, I suggested already. Be willing to make mistakes. It's not an if, it's a when. We will make mistakes because of the stereotypes that we have, especially if you've been brought up in this country or you've lived here any significant amount of time. It, it's a when. <laughs> We, we've been taught all these stereotypes, and therefore we're going to unfortunately act on them. Again, not intentionally, necessarily, right? It's, it's really about thinking about what we don't know we don't know and figuring out what that is and, and what we need to do differently again. Um, it's hard work, and it's lifelong, right? I'm still making mistakes. I make mistakes every day, almost every day. Um, and I, I challenge myself on that constantly. But I continue to show up when I make those mistakes. Because I can you know, I talk about guilt and feeling like, oh, I can't believe I just said, did that really come out of my mouth? Happened, I was at the conference, I just did that a couple of days ago, and I said, and I literally said, did I say that out loud, you know? And thankfully, it was with somebody I had already built a relationship with so we could laugh about it. But I needed to apologize, and I did. And so I was able to get, balance. so there's a process to this. And as embarrassed and yucky as it felt to be doing that, I also knew that it was going to event, it's going to work itself out. It's going to be okay as long as you have built these relationships where you can make mistakes and still show up again. The worst thing to do would be to walk away and say, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed, I can't, I can't. Right? Then, you, then it's a missed opportunity to actually learn and grow and develop the things that we, we haven't been taught. Yeah. That's it.
0: A lot to digest, um, a lot to think about. <clears throat> we have some time for questions for Dr. Samuels, and I'll run the mic up. Or if you can speak loudly, um, I'll run the mic up. Yep. I need the exercise. <laughs> I've got my hand here.
3: Thanks. Um, this is less of a question, more of a comment. Uh, There was a question earlier about what teachers, future teachers, could do in their classrooms. I was a program director for an after-school program, and uh, I saw a lot of what we saw in the videos, um, you know, just uh, occurring naturally in these kids. Um, And I found one way I could fight it, and it would pretty much every day. um, It was less easy to, like, get to it was more easy to get to than all these other things, but a lot, a big thing with the community that I was serving was um, sports and gender, mm-hmm. and there was this big issue about girls not being good at sports, blah blah blah. There was this, especially this group of boys who would always, uh, when we were in assemblies, I would always give the kids ba- chances to shoot the basketball, and I would always just pick whoever wrote their hand. And every time there was a girl who was about to shoot the basketball, they're gonna like, oh, she's gonna miss it, she's gonna miss it. It's a girl, it's a girl. But there was a sweet little third grade girl that could make a half court every single time. And so every single time I heard the boys harassing girls, and the girls did great all the time, but they were still harassing them. So I knew that this little third grade girl could outshoot the sixth grade boys every single time. And so whenever I heard this talk, I was just like, I'm going to break that right now. And I'm going to show that this young little girl can shoot better than three-year-older boys every single time. And so that was just one example. I think being subjective like that, finding little tiny ways to do it throughout the day, uh, it it definitely opened their eyes, I feel.
2: Perfect. And that's an example of priming, right, that you actually found a counter-stereotypic example and put it into their heads. So hopefully if they saw that and they learned it, that, that that would actually change their impression of what girls can do and what they can't do. Yeah, Presum- presumably. Thank you. Yes.
0: Hi, uh, thank you so much for your information. And I had a question that you mentioned earlier about research. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just, I feel this tension where um, there doesn't seem to be a total homogeneity among these groups. So I, my concern is that when we go to maybe the internet, say, Google to research, how can I feel confident that I'm getting information that's not just another stereotype? Yes. Like, and especially if even maybe that's from an individual of that group, mm-hmm. can that individual really give me an accurate picture for the entire people group that yes. I'm considering?
2: Very go- oh, such a beautiful question, thank you so much. Um, yes, where there's a ton of misinformation out there, right? We all know that Wikipedia is like literally people just go on and they can add to it, right? Anyone can add anything to Wikipedia. Um, that 's a little scary that this is where we base a lot of our information on you know um, there's you know there 's a percentage of it that 's pretty accurate, but there 's always misinformation in there, so I really appreciate that that question um, I you know whenever possible, turning to uh, resources that are like uh, peer reviewed journal articles, those kinds of things to get some solid information um, that doesn 't take the place of the importance of learning from uh, articles that are um, a little bit more subjective so you can hear someone's experience. Um, what I would recommend is going to perhaps um, an expert in the field. Um, perhaps perhaps um, Dr. Burnley can give you some, some recommendations. Like, I, I would go and ask the question from people you respect, where do you go? What are your resources? What do you recommend that I read so that I have a better understanding of this? Um, again, without going to the person whose identity you need to, you know, I need, you know, I need to know everything about your life. It's not that. It's saying, who do I know in the community who I respect? And say, I want to do my own research. What, what, what resources do you recommend? So I love that question. It's a great question. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Question. Um, you work K through 20, 20 in, yeah. high, in um, education in the United States. Talk a little bit about, if you will, the role required reading across discipline plays in either combating or perpetuating implicit bias. Required reading, curricula, the canon. Uh, There's been a lot of work about this kind of persistent marginalization, for instance, of, of various voices. What do you see as persistent challenges? Where do you see the hope? What role does the curriculum play and the kind of outcomes we see with those little girls, for instance.
2: Yes, thank you. So what I'm finding, and I've been teaching in the university for quite a few years now. And what I've found is that there has not been as much change as I would like in that area. So that when I bring up ideas to my students about our history, they still only know history from a white perspective, still. When there are books out there like James Lowen's um, the, uh, the Lies My Teachers Told Me or um, Howard Zinn's A People's History, which gives an, uh, a perspective from different, different people's perspectives of looking at our history from 1492 to today, um, to modern history. And so the fact that my students are still questioning or, and still like, That's, I've never learned that before, tells me that we really haven't gotten very far. Um, and what is required reading is typically based on the districts, the school districts, especially if it's public school, right? It's, it's the school districts deciding what are the approved books, what are the approved required readings for your grade. Um, that's where the work, I think, needs to be done as well. So it's not enough just for, I mean, I, I believe teachers need to sort of take this on when, you know, doing, we all need to be doing whatever we can to challenge this but also at the school district level of saying, who is on the curriculum committee? If it's all you know people who look the same and who have a similar kind of perspective, we're really missing the diversity that we have, the beautiful diversity that we have in terms of other voices that we just haven't learned, we haven't heard about, we don't know exist. And so to me, that's an area that, that I mean, if, if, if you're interested in, in that kind of, politics or policy making, I strongly recommend. Like We need help in that area, for sure, across the country, I think.
0: Other questions?
3: I've been sitting on this question because I don't want it to come out of a place of skepticism, but (laughs) since you've been bringing up a lot of language of where I want to be or where we want to be as far as a society, how do we measure that? Um, without making it sound like I have the token text on my curriculum, or I have, is the outcome of the doll the optimal outcome of the doll experiment a 50-50? Or, and I perhaps the problem isn't, we shouldn't be looking for the quantitative outcome, in the back of my mind, I know that, but sort of how do we know we're progressing in the right direction, or how do I go about diversifying my curriculum without going to do a checklist and just making sure that it, I have the token voices present, and I use that. Carefully. So
2: great. Yes. Beautiful. Like, very thoughtful, thoughtful question. Um, I'm thinking of two things. First of all, so for tokenism, to me, it's, it, I'd rather have something on the curriculum, on the syllabus than nothing. Um, but to me, it's the meta-analysis. It's, it's actually having the conversation about at telling your students, or, you know, if, you're, if you become a teacher, telling your students, this is what I was looking for. And this is all I could find. I'm still looking, right? So having that conversation about this is a process of finding, get it, gathering resources, and letting them know that it's important. And if you can't find anything in your field, you, you actually say that too. That I know I'm looking at my syllabus and I'm seeing that all of it, all of it is covered by white men, for example. I mean, you, you sometimes don't know that they're, you know, that they're white, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm. I'm speaking in generalities here, that this is what, it, so in other words, you're being transparent about your process. That will go a long way. As long as you are looking, right? And you're asking for the resources and all of that. The other piece is you're, you're asking this larger question of the, the tokenism that, that, ha- that occurs, and what we need to be doing uh, you know, on a larger scale. Um, how do we, as a culture, need to be thinking about education of, of kids so that kids, I mean, when you say what's the optimal result, the question that I like is not necessarily what's the optimal a, a result, but how do we know we're doing it well? How do we know we're getting it right? How do we know inclusiveness is happening? And I can give you a hundred different ways to to answer that question. Um, On a campus level, we can talk about the fact that we have uh, not only recruitment, but retaining that faculty uh, from marginalized cultures are here and staying here for a long time. Students are retaining, so they're actually graduating. Retention rates are typically based on if you go from your frost year to your sophomore year, that's how retention rates are based. I don't really like looking at retention rates. I like looking at graduation rates. That's where the money is. You know, that's like, that's the bottom line. I want to know that we're graduating at the same rate as perhaps what the community, you know, what the community has in terms of numbers, okay? Um, that if folks are, of perhaps folks of color, folks from traditionally marginalized, students from traditionally marginalized groups are graduating based on their numbers are graduating at the same level as, not, as dominant culture members, we're, we're doing good. We're doing well, right? Um, and that's, the, like I said, so that's the same with staff members, that's the same with faculty, that we want to make sure that they're staying and that they're, they feel included here. How do we know? We can do some surveying that helps. We can do some um, uh, focus groups and ask the questions. Do you feel included here? Y'all have done some of that already. I've seen some of those numbers. Um, you, you know, you've done well. You've still got some ways to go, as everyone else in the country does. You know, we're 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 still getting there, but um, y'all have made a little bit of headway. Yeah, yeah.
4: Hi, Dr. Samuels. Uh, and this question is probably a good follow-up to that. My name is Todd Friends. I'm a teacher here, but I I mean I've lived here for 20 years in Spokane, and I. I live here because I love the place, but I knew the first week I moved here and I looked at the school district mix for my kids, Mm -hmm. and I'd never seen schools that were 98% Anglo, Mm -hmm. you know, and the only schools that had like 94% were the ones where the Air Force base is. Uh, So I knew my next 20 years is probably one of the greatest dilemmas, uh, and also in raising my kids, I actually took them out of here deliberately for two or three years, um, especially after one of them was in a yeah, you know, McDonald's, and saw an African American person and said, "Dad, there's a ba- there's a basketball player." I mean, I knew I had those types of problems, yeah. so I had the beauty of at least taking them out for a while, and I hopefully they globalized. But being a lover of Spokane, being a lover of Whitworth, I'm not naive that as you can see here today, we are a white European community. We are a white European college. Uh, so my question is, can you give us some examples of some pace setters, so some case examples? of other universities that you think over a certain period of time that have really excelled in inclusiveness that were fundamentally, you know, it may still be fundamentally from a population demographic perspective white European as well as communities.
2: I want to answer that again and I always have lots of ideas coming in my head so I'm going to just say two things. Um, The first is that you do have some diversity here. And so it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and whether it's just racial diversity or race, racial ethnic diversity, or we're talking about um, gender, sexuality, um, perhaps we're talking about class issues, social class, um, age, all of these things. So, so we want to be much more inclusive in terms of thinking about what diversity looks like. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, and then in terms of is there a case study I know campuses that are doing better jobs at this than others. I, don't, I can't think of a single case. I mean, I could say on our campus, I know we're doing a decent job. My, our chancellor always talks about the numbers and our graduation rates are actually really good in terms of race and ethnicity, uh, in terms of what's going on in our, in our region. Um, and so we're, we're pretty good on that. But uh, you know, to say that there's a pinnacle, that there's one campus that's doing exceptionally well I think we're all in at this point of saying, "What can we do better?" I really believe. I mean, I can't. I really can't say, "Boom!" This campus has it. They got it down. I think we're all learning, and again, we're, we've got an uphill battle. Based on all the stereotypes and the media and everything else that we get, the misinformation that we get about our culture and other cultures all the time, every day, it's an uphill battle, and it will continue to be. And yet, here you all are. Right, here you all are and some of you may have been required to come, I don't know. But you know, I, I get that, I get that. But, but the fact is, is that you're here and you're listening and you're paying attention and I can see that. And so to me that is, how, that's how we know we're doing it well. And I say we, it's the royal way, I really mean you all, right? You all are doing it well, yeah.
1: Sure. Um, mine's connected to the last few questions and we've been talking about an implicit bias. It's and um, you mentioned and touched on how a lot of that's caused by systemic problems, yeah. and how do we as edu- my question is how is we do as educators address systemic problems, rather after we address our own implicit problems?
2: Yeah. Oof, that's a tough one. Yeah, right? So I think it's a matter of um, there's, a, there's a give and take between um, the system and the individual. And so when I teach courses on this particular stuff, I go back and forth, so I'm trying to make it clear to students that, um, or to educators even, that we are not just talking about one or the other because systems, we're in the system, so we're part of a system of inequality, the system of inequalities that exists. That like again, we didn't create it, but yet here it is, and this is what it is. So once they start understanding what that looks like on a systemic. Um, level and I typically use a lot of statistics from the Census Bureau that would be hard to dispute. They're from the U.S. Census Bureau. Like, It's not perfect, but it's about the best stats we have at the, currently to say what's going on in the, in the country. Um, I give them a lot of statistics that give a basis and a, a sort of a bottom line of here's what's going on. Whether or not your experience uh, matches those statistics is almost irrelevant. This is what's going on in the country. And then we can talk about what, what, what of those statistics, so I can talk about the fact that women, I'll just give you an example, that women make 78 cents to a man's dollar. Like, okay, most of you probably know that already. For the same job with the same background, the same education, all of that. That's where we are. Knowing that, now all of a sudden you, know, you have females in a classroom who are saying, oh yeah, that happened to me and so they can they can actually connect with the problem at the same time the males in the classroom may say i had no idea i w- was getting this benefit just for how, you know the gender i were the sex i was born right so it's it's connecting it's connecting with the problem how does this operate in my life and then of course always what do i what can i do about this yeah so i don't know if that answers all your questions but yes.
1: dina thank you My question is really about both the substance and tone of the conversations we're having in our communities around these issues. Mm -hmm. And my perception and observation is that the stakes are very high and getting higher as it relates to addressing matters of difference and unconscious bias, uh, conscious bias. What words of encouragement or advice would you give a community like ours? That at once, once we want to root out and name and identify and confront issues of implicit bias. And at the same time, we want to be a learning community where 18 to 22-year-olds primarily have the opportunity to come and learn and make mistakes. What what kinds of advice would you give us in in creating a community where we're, we're unapologetic about both rooting out the problem and uh, extending the grace to understand that people are, are in the process of learning and will make mistakes. How can we lower the stakes in some, in some ways so that good conversation and dialogue can take place?
2: So I'm not sure lowering the stakes is the goal necessarily. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, like if the stakes are so high, you're afraid to say anything, right? Um, so I, I do, I hear where you're coming from. To answer your question, I think that you are in a unique, one of few was 120 campuses that are faith-based that belong to the CCCU. Um, you have this unique, it, It's 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 sort of a support that you have. You're almost boosted by your faith, that you can actually use that in the sense that I see this work as a calling. I see this work as a spiritu- making a spiritual, authentic connection with people across differences. So to me, that is, that's so powerful, especially on this campus. Because now we're not just talking about what the quote-unquote right thing to do is, which I can talk about out there and, you know, on other campuses. But here I can actually say, this is spiritual. This goes well beyond just, you know, doing the right thing. This goes down to you know this is this is based in something much bigger, much bigger, um, and so I think there's that and and also, as I said earlier, sort of treading gently, and knowing that you know you've been in here tonight. Maybe perhaps you're you this is a self-selected group who has decide, who has already been working on these issues, so that what I'm saying isn't completely brand new to you. For some of you it might be, but for others of you. This might be like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that before. Or, yeah, this is similar to what I've been working on in this class or in this community or whatever. Um, And so knowing that, being able to um, interact with other people who may not know what you know, and being able to do so gently. So rather than reacting to, oh, my gosh, you just said something so racist or sexist or, you know, and really, you know, wanting to shake the person, like, how could you do that? Don't you know the problems we get? You know, that's not going to be effective. So I would say, you know, treating people with compassion and kindness, you know, as you go through the process. And it's easier to do that if we can think about it in terms of maybe there was a time at some point in your life where you can remember not knowing this stuff. I don't know if that's true, but perhaps, you know, you knew a lot about racism in your life, but you didn't know anything. You didn't know heterosexism was a thing. You know, the, the assumption that everybody's heterosexual. Or, or you didn't know classism or poverty exists. Whatever it is, there, there's something that you didn't know before. And that's how we can approach other people. Saying, you know, they, they say something that you think is really offensive, and instead of just smacking them, you know, or whatever. I don't mean that. Literally. I just mean like saying something, like really reacting to them. Um, You can say, oh, they they just don't know. And this is a really great opportunity for learning and growth, right? And a way for us to have an authentic conversation and actually have our relationship deepen around it. That's how I feel. Um, so taking things down to like an elementary level, mm-hmm. um, in that video we were able to see how early students develop these biases. Yeah. So in the elementary school, as a teacher, seeing issues such as bullying happening in the classroom, how do we deal with our students who have those biases that are already so strongly developed? So there's curriculum around the this how, how to do that in the classroom. Um, Tons and tons of ideas. I, I mean, I can give you plenty, but the best resource I know is teachingtolerance.org. And teachingtolerance.org really focuses on K-12 classrooms and how to handle, I mean, anything you can think of that you're like, I'm dealing with bullying, I'm dealing with this particular kind of bullying, they'll have it. They'll have an article about it. They'll have resources. They have stuff that's free. You can get videos. You can get stuff in your classroom. You can have activities you can do with students. It's an amazing resource. So, yeah, that's
0: Quick question, and I think we're going to wrap up here unless it's a burning question. Um, we have in the room administrators, university administrators, faculty. We have in the room senior administrator from public school system here. Um, each of them have a demonstrated uh, commitment to you know, the issues that, that, that you've addressed this evening. Um, what is your advice to them, to us? Um, with regard to how to get those persons in the room who tend not to show up to these types of events. Mm -hmm. You know, you've heard of the proverbial choir. Uh, You you have in this room, perhaps, persons who are required to be here, maybe, students, maybe. Uh, You have persons who care, and maybe persons who are just out of curiosity wanting to grow. But we often find that a large majority often of faculty or, or, or educators in K through 12 tend not to show up yes. for a variety of reasons. How do we get them in the room as well? I mean, what, 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 are you, what's your, what advice do you give? What um, best practices have you seen in your travels uh, that really gets the word out to everybody? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And again, I'm glad you're asking it. Um, it's, you know, in, in my work on my campus, um, I, 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 you mentioned in my bio, whatever that, I've created curriculum across um, all of these segments of our campus population. So, um, thinking about these issues in terms of inequalities um, and how this stuff plays out for administrative staff, faculty, and uh, student leaders. And so we do workshops on our campus around this issue. And what we found was when we, get, when we said that it was voluntary, we have the choir come. They're very excited to come, and that's great. But what happens when we want others to come who may not be part of the choir today, yet, yet, that's the key, what do we do? And what we have found is that when we have a personal invitation, so ha- making it mandatory, there's issues with that. I, that's part of, I wrote about that in my book too, if you're interested, or I can tell you about it at some other time. But, but in a personal invitation. So, for example, the head of the business school, we invited personally. Will you come to this workshop? And he came because he had a, we had built a personal relationship together, and he felt like it was he, he felt pulled to it based on the relationship, not based on what the material necessarily was. And he may have said, ugh, I guess I gotta go. I guess I have to clear my schedule for a few hours and do it. Um, And then all of a sudden he's drawn in, and now all of a sudden the head of the business school is saying, my faculty need to come to this. I gotta talk this up in my, you know, so that's how it happens. That's, it's really, it might be in, you know, ones and twos at a time, but that is how we, it's the pay it forward kind of idea. You know, you you have a conversation with one friend or two friends and they have conversations, you know, and that's, and if you're doing it in a compassionate, gentle way, it doesn't feel like you have to come here because you are doing this really badly, you know. It's more along the lines of, hey, I'm going to this really cool thing. Why don't you come? Come join me. You know, but that personal invitation means
0: everything. Uh, Any last question for the evening? Please, uh. Let's uh, thank Dr. Samuels for sharing. On behalf of our President Beck Taylor and all of the Whitworth community, thank you for joining us for this uh, evening of engagement. Uh, Dr. Samuels uh, does have a book here for sale uh, out here outside the auditorium, and she will be available to sign copies. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. God bless you.